You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Hey Bryce, thank you so much for where you're at. Thank you. I was wondering why it was such full sound and I realized, oh, you're not using a toy guitar like Austin usually. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. Austin, we love you. We love you. No, his guitar's real, don't worry. Um, but thank you, right? Austin, just re- in real, he, he, is, he had like some really bad allergic reaction this morning or yesterday and uh, it's really bad. So he's actually at urgent care right now. Um, so you guys can pray for him. We care for him. But I uh, called Bryce this morning and just um, really thankful for you to come up and do that. So I was going to sing, but nobody wanted that on the staff team. So uh, neither does the Lord, I think. Um, guys, it's good to see you. Uh, it's been a few weeks. Um, but it's great to, to be back. And we made it to chapter 3 of 1 John. It's funny, it's such a small book, but it's still, when you go line by line, it can really have some meat. And that's what I love about John's writings, is you can read it full through, chapters 1 through 5, and it's just such rich, pastorally written, simple. I mean, you read that, and you're like, whoa, okay, it's just, it is what it is. But then you kind of take it, and you break it down, and you retranslate it through the scope of Scripture, not just isolate it and there's so much richness here and some incredible theology. Um, so just as, uh, as we're in chapter 3, kind of brief recap, recap of chapters 1 and 2, just to remember John, he's, this, he's most likely the Apostle John, but again, there is some debate on like who this John is, but most likely. There's so many uh, characteristics that are the same as the Gospel of John, so it's hard that it's not, it'd be hard if it wasn't. But we know that John is, a, is kind of a wise, older man. Uh, he's been figuring out what it means to follow Jesus for, for about at least the last 60 years post the cross of Jesus and the resurrection. Um, and he's putting down his understanding of what it means to now follow Jesus, uh, not just to the local church where he's writing in Ephesus area, but to the church at large. And of course, because it's God's word, it goes to us um, long time later. Uh, so chapters one and two have dealt primarily with responding to false teachings about Jesus by encouraging right teachings about Jesus, right? The false teachers, they were teaching that Jesus was just this kind of spirit of God and not actually God in the flesh. So John responds with uh, this eternal word of life in, in chapter one, verse two, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. He's like, it was actually made real to us. You can't say it wasn't real. The false teachers go on to say our actions don't matter. There's no sin as long as we have the right knowledge, the right thinking about God. John responds, chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The false teachers, again, they go on to say, well, they know God. Don't worry, we know God. But John responds in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. The false teachers then go on, they show hatred toward those who believe, who do not believe in what they now believe. John says in 2.9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 
And then last week, Jesse walked us through John's kind of delineation between where this is all coming from, right? That either having a spirit for Christ, but there's also a spirit against Christ or anti-Christ, right? Those who abide in Christ and those who deny the Christ. Then John encourages the church at the end of chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, And now, little children, which is his word for the church, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and may not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So he's laying out these, again, arguments against these false teachings, but he's doing it by teaching the right teaching of what Christ showed his apostles. So now we begin chapter 3, and it's no wonder that the great pastoral loving heart of John starts with pause and reflection after all of that on what we've received from God. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reflection to pause and see the, what the Father has given us and to see that he's given us everything, right? That we have done nothing but realize our sin, confess our sin, and made righteous by the only one who is righteous, that is Jesus Christ. We are now considered full children of God. That's mind-blowing. For him to just pause there and say, like, let's reflect on what we have in Christ. But it's also why what it sets, sets us apart from the world. I heard a quote recently. It was from Randall who heard it from someone else. So it's already a few deep, but it wasn't from me or him. Um, but I keep in my mind, and I heard it the other day, and he said, he heard this, all people are image bearers, but not all image bearers are children of God. Does that make sense? All people have the, have, were created to have that stamp of the creator on them, but not all people recognize their sin. Not all people recognize their separation from God or even want to be saved, thus keeping themselves from this gracious inheritance of the Father. Because anyone, as Paul says in Romans 10, who would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. They keep themselves. The world does not want this. Many who love the world do not want this. In fact, some will work actively against this reality. And Jesus told us this would happen. Okay, in John 15, he's talking to his disciples, and he says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, a world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, you. if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He told us this would happen. And he said, some are going to accept it because they accepted me. And some are going to deny it because they denied me. Following in the footsteps of Jesus also means being treated as he was treated. And for some reason, the world does not like those who are not of the world. So he's setting this up, right? Seeing, see what we have. Let's read it again back in 1 John Chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And now verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now, 
and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. My John is firmly establishing that now we don't have to worry. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And here's the other part. It's okay if you look at yourself and say, really, this is it? right? But there's so much I don't know. There's still sin in my life. I still have doubts. I still have questions. Surely I couldn't be a child of God. If you've had those thoughts, if you've had that moment of reflection, it's okay. Take a second and say to yourself, maybe, just maybe, you and I are not Jesus reincarnate. (laughs) Maybe, right? It's not our life mission to be perfect and sinless and save the whole world. That was Jesus's mission, right? The first step is to let that fantasy go. Second, be encouraged with the line, what we will be has not yet appeared. It's not over yet. We are being shaped. We are being formed. It's child of God, not now you are full-blown saint of God, right? We are being saved. The fancy theology word for this is sanctification. Okay, sanctification is the process of being saved. You are being saved saved as you live life with Christ. And it takes a lifetime to be shaped and formed into what God made you to be. But that is the beauty. God didn't just save us and then leave us with this future inheritance and just watch and see if we make it out alive, right? Through the fires of this world, we are being transformed and we have confidence as Paul encourages us in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, back to 1 John, chapter 3, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's not what we are doing for God that purifies us. Okay, it's not our works for God that makes us pure. It's what he's done in us that makes his purity our purity. It's Christ who is the hope of glory, not our own perfection. He is the one who will bring this good work he started in our spirit to fulfillment. But there is still, so there's encouragement in that, but there's still a charge to rid ourselves of sin as best we can and live a life that was made example to us by Jesus Christ on earth. So now we're to the main part of the passage today. John is firmly establishing the place that followers of God have in his family. Again, full inheritance as his children. But we are still human. There is still doubt. There are still issues with our lives, right? So John is actually going to spend a lot of the next chapter or two working through some family values, right? This family of God has values of what we can use as tests for knowing those who are truly in and those who say they know God but do not actually know God. So there's three family values over chapter three and much of chapter four that we're going to be walking through in the next few weeks of what it means to be in this family of God, okay? So the first one is to practice righteousness, value number one. Value number two is to love one another. And value number three is to test the spirits. Again, it'll take us a few weeks to work through these. But today, this section we'll be looking at is centered on the children of God valuing practice of righteousness. Or another way to say it is to practice right action, okay? So as he's going to do with a lot of these sentences, John begins with the negative in verse 4 as he works through this practice righteousness. So verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, that line, 
struck me. Sin is lawlessness. So in the language of our passage today, we're looking at practicing righteousness versus practicing lawlessness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read lawlessness, the opposite of that, I would think would be lawfulness, right? We'll get back and obey the law. But biblically, the opposite of lawlessness is actually righteousness. Look at Paul uh, in Romans 6, 19. It says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Interesting, huh? This language is interesting because lawlessness is also related to the spirit of the Antichrist that we looked at last chapter. Remember, Jesus didn't come to take away the law or abolish it, is what the scriptures say, but to fulfill the law. So we are not under the law, but under grace. But sin still is a violation of what the law was. It's just now covered under grace, not punishment. But being lawless means you can't be in Christ Jesus. You can't be covered by his grace because you're not under his grace, which fulfills the law. So to be lawless is to be outside of Christ. And Jesus made this difference pretty clear. When he's walking with his disciples in Matthew 12, verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Okay, but the key phrase is not that sin is lawlessness, but the key phrase is everyone who makes a practice of sinning, right? People who make sinning a chosen lifestyle, not just a casualty of living in a broken, sinful world. Those are two different things. If there's conviction of your sin and you don't want it to be a definition of your very existence, then I don't think you have to freak out, right? You probably aren't making a practice of sinning. But I do think a little bit, when we read these passages, a little bit of uncomfortable warning is usually good for our souls. So let's pause and let's reflect. And this is for a question for all of us. Is there sin in your life that you are in danger of making it a practice? Is there sin in your life that is in danger of something that habitually just keeps happening over and over again that is in danger of becoming a practice? Because verse 5. Let me read this over you of chapter 3 of 1 John. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. John is trying to say it's not that, again, from the false teachers that there is no sin in you, right? That's what he says. We deceive ourselves when we make him to be a liar. He says Jesus came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So John is recompassing our sights to Jesus, not ourselves. In fact, verse 6, he goes on, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So note, this is different than the Gnostics who say they have no sin in them. Remember, John's retort to this was not to not have sin, but to recognize your sin and to confess your sin. And this is to the one who is faithful and just to forgive. But verses like this, I don't know about you guys, but it can be a stumbling block, right? What do we do then as Christians with our sin? What do we do with that? This is a great example of how taking an isolated verse out of the Bible without proper biblical kind of understanding as a whole can get you into trouble. If you just take this verse and nothing else, then there's not much hope for all who sin. And contrary to some teachings out there, I don't believe there's a way to perfect yourself. 
right? A, because it sounds incredibly hard and impossible to do, and B, there's no need for Jesus's perfection, right? If we have our own perfection to lean on, why do we need Jesus? So that doesn't sound biblically accurate, if, but we have to define the Bible by the Bible. Notice this doesn't start with, he who practices sin cannot abide in Christ. He's starting with the positive. No one who abides in him, meaning no one who has surrendered their life to Christ, who has repented and been washed new by the saving grace of Jesus, desires to keep sinning as a lifestyle. So again, if there's a certain area in your life that surfaced to your mind as a particular shameful practice or something you know is wrong, but it just can't seem to stop, like it's got this grip on your life, the encouragement in truth is that this is potentially not an area you have truly repented and let go of, right? Sure, there's ways to remove sin or get clean or stop in some way, but willpower is only going to take us so far. The first step is to identify what it is and to recognize it as sin. The next then is back in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is actually the first step of practicing righteousness, practicing right action. I read recently uh, a great way to, to think about sin in our flesh, kind of these habitual things that keep coming up, as the beast, the beast of the flesh. The idea came from Genesis 4 when God actually warns Cain. If you remember, this is the Cain and Abel story, which we'll actually get to uh, a little bit more next uh, Sunday. But God actually warns Cain before he does anything rash. Okay, and he actually says in Genesis 4, 7, he says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Okay, God gives sin beast-like qualities. And the reality of the beast is that it is hungry, right? It's crouching to pounce and feed on whatever it can. So how do you defeat it? You starve it. You give it nothing to feed on. And I, this is not a, maybe it's a tattoo idea, but starve the beast is what I've just been like thinking about a little bit, right? Just sounds so metal. Starve the beast, right? And this takes surrender, right? There has to be full surrender to a power so much greater than our own, because if it's just our willpower, I don't know if we can do it, because the beast is part of us, right? It's part of this flesh. But we have to believe in the scriptures that freedom from this beast is actually real. Let me just read you two that came to my mind. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We have to believe and live in the reality that there's actual freedom from sin having dominion over your life. John himself, a chapter ago, even said, 1 John 2, 1, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But remember, it's not about our perfection, but living in the grace of Christ's perfection. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So coming back to our passage, it's not that this is some huge test and if you sin, you fail. It's that if you're truly abiding in Christ, and as Jesse kind of walked us through last week, abiding isn't just like a nice quiet time in the morning. It's actually doing life with God, attaching yourself to God. Then you won't make it your life practice to sin. 
Remember, John is not trying to scare Christians. He's, he's actually trying to encourage them. He's giving them warning signs so they would not be deceived by those who claim to know God, but practice something different than Christ called his followers to. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. John's pastoral heart here is for followers of Jesus to not be led astray. We know there is a spirit within people that is against Christ and anti-Christ. We know that many deceivers have gone out into the world to take advantage and lead people on wild belief trails, most likely to profit and gain self-glory. But one of the great markers and intentional right actions for God is to practice righteousness. And because Christ is righteous, if it is right action in Christ, then it will be true righteousness. But John does the flip. Conversely, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The comparison here is incredible, right? Whoever practices, again, make it their lifestyle, righteousness is righteous because of Jesus, the righteous one. But whoever makes it their lifestyle to live in sin is not righteous, but of the devil. And this is how it's been from the beginning. Jesus even calls us out in person when he was teaching his disciples, John 6, 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the 12 and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Right? Judas was not the devil himself, but was caught in the darkness and now was practicing out of what had a hold on his life. In fact, it's funny to say, but darkness is not something we came up with. Right? You see this all the time in action movies where usually the bad guy of the movie is like this ultimate darkness. It's like hell personified, right? But darkness is not something to be harnessed or wielded. For once, I agree with the bad guy on this one. When Christian Bale's Batman thinks he is the darkness because he's done some dangerous things, but the great theologian Bain critiques, Ah, you think darkness is your ally, but you merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. I promise Steve I do the voice and I practice a little bit. This darkness... It's not something you envelop, it's not, it's not something you wield, you're enveloped by it, right? You become stuck in a pawn in the great game of the darkness. It's only by the light that you see what has a grip on your life and then realize who's really pulling the strings. The devil knows how to pull people down with him. He knows how to convince people he has great salvation powers and that glory is for the self to be taken regardless of others. That is the root of sin. It's the self-glory, right? This is the value. This is a value of the devil's work. And this is why the next line in John's letter here is so important. This should be the tattoo we all get, right? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Man, that is a line. To destroy the works of the devil. That is so huge. This is the source behind all the evil you see in the world. We didn't come up with evil, right? Bain didn't come up with evil or sin or destruction or taking or people just taking whatever they want. This is what the devil has been doing from the beginning and how he has brought people down with him since the existence of the earth. So Jesus didn't just come to give a better way or to avoid those sinners or to live a better life. That's religion, right? 
That's just being a better person, and you don't necessarily need Jesus to do that. Jesus' mission, he came to destroy the foundations of sin. The fundamental cause of brokenness and sin and death, this is what makes him Lord of Lords and King of Kings, because no one else could do this. And this is why with that kind of righteous power, John can confidently say in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. I love how the scriptures just can't seem to, to use enough of these garden analogies, right? John 15 talks about abiding like branches to this great vine that produces fruit. Here, John is talking about the planting of a new seed inside our spirits that makes us into something new, born of God. If you remember from our, our first Peter series, Peter wrote in, in the chapter 1, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, this eternal life. This new seed is incompatible with sin having a hold on it. The ones born of God cannot keep sinning like they used to. Back in that John 15 passage, John went on, or Jesus went on to say, this is John 15, verses 22 to 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. I have a hot take. I haven't done one of these in a while. Here's my hot take. Jesus ruined sin for everyone, okay? Obviously, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, right? But because of Jesus and what he just said, you can no longer enjoy or blissfully be ignorant of your favorite sin, okay? And that now puts us in the pathway of either hating Christ because we want to continue to sin or hating our sin, believing in Christ, repenting of our sin, and walking in what righteousness looks like on this fallen earth. Praise Jesus that he broke that power. Back to 1 John 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So again, John kind of almost semi-confusingly uses the negative to kind of prove a point. You can see those, regardless of how good their words are, who are really not followers of God because they do not practice righteousness and they do not love their fellow believer. So the positive of that is to encourage right action or to practice righteousness. It's then defined by those who practice righteousness and love one another. This is the test to see the value for what is in the family of God. Practice righteousness. And as Jesus is righteous, it means practice the life that Jesus lived and love one another. Next week, we're going to dive into the next value, the next step, that is love one another. But today, I want us to just sit in the confidence that if you believe in Jesus and you want to follow him with your life, then there is something inside of you that will keep sin from taking over your life. It's not just a cool idea. Right, the scriptures say this, Romans 8, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. 
Man, that's that seed that John's talking about. That is, this is how Jesus went after the foundations of sin. He gave us a whole new spirit, undefiled, made new by the power of his resurrection, still inside our broken mortal bodies. Now go back to that, those, the sin, or maybe it was a couple, the, just, the, the habitual that could potentially be practices in our lives. If God can raise Christ Jesus from the dead, then that sin you think that came to your mind, what power does it really have? As sin leads to death and God can raise Christ from the dead, what power does it really have? Jesus' resurrection destroys the works of the devil. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. And the great lie of the devil is that he makes you believe there still is that you can't do enough, that there is no way you can become righteous enough for God to love you. This habitual sin will never go away, and it's just who you are now. Those are lies. Those are shameful, filled lies. It's the last-ditch effort of a losing side to take what it can with it. And here's the encouragement. Starve that beast. Let it go. Abide in and surrender to the Lord Jesus and watch his spirit work richly in your life as you strive to practice this righteousness. Practicing righteousness simultaneously starves the beast and feeds the spirit within you by producing good fruit. Starve the beast, feed the spirit. Walking out here today, our prayer is that we would be encouraged by what it means to be for Christ not focusing on who is anti or against Christ or who is a child of the devil and who is not. We need to be a people that display righteousness through right action, which means when people look at us, they should see Jesus. They should see the works of Jesus. They should see something greater than self-glory. Amen? And this, guys, is what we respond to because it's only Christ the righteous within us, sanctifying us, that constantly being saved that makes this possible. And that's why we're going to respond today. You know how we do it. We sing songs. We pray together. I would love to pray with anyone in the back. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your neighbor, right? Pray just with God. That's insane that we have this communion, this open conversation portal to our God who wants to hear from us and speak to us. And we give, we give of our riches so that the community can be blessed as we just try to see how we can be life and and work in Jesus's ultimate restoration project for Albany, right? And then ultimately, we get to receive communion. We get to remember all this is possible again because Jesus's death and resurrection was the beginning of destruction of the works of the devil. He made it possible so for him to stand, sit there with his followers and say, this bread is like my body that's going to be broken for you. You don't understand it now, but you will someday. And this cup is like my blood that's going to be spilled for you. When you take this, will you remember that I have done, I've started the work. I've made it possible to plant the new seed, to have the new spirit within you. And what I have started, I will see to completion. And when we go to the tables today, as Bryce leads us in song, let's remember that and worship our good king, that he has made that possible. Will you guys pray with me and we'll respond?